from there, I went to the War College. And we'll come back to the Fifth Engineers because that's when I think some of my bipolarity started to really creep in, although it didn't hit hard for a couple of years later when I was in the Iraq War. And that's when the doctors say it was really triggered was in Iraq. Welcome to this week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast with your host, a military veteran herself, Tiffany Marchink. Major General Greg F. Martin, retired, served in the United States Army for 35 years before resigning from his role as president of the National Defense University. Greg graduated from West Point University, earned two masters and a PhD from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and held many high visibility positions and served on multiple deployments accomplishing many things as an engineer officer in the U.S. Army. However, he had a mental war brewing inside. His battle with bipolar disorder began silently in active combat in Iraq in 2003, but he was finally properly diagnosed in 2014 following his resignation. His mission today is to end the stigma of bipolar disorder and mental health, specifically in the military, by sharing his story. So I grew up in Holbrook, Massachusetts, near Boston, and uh, born in 1956. My dad was a World War II Navy veteran. My mother had a couple brothers in the Coast Guard. So military service was just in our blood, in our family, something I always wanted to do. I went to the University of Maine for my first year of college, and uh, I was a walk-on to Army ROTC, and I really liked it. I, I liked the people, the teamwork, the training, you know, all the HUA stuff we got to do. And as a result, I applied to all of the service academies, Army, Navy, Air Force, Merchant Marine, and Coast Guard. And after applying to all of them, the only one that took me was West Point. The others disqualified me because <laughs> of my, my eyesight. So I got into West Point, and off I went, and I joined Mother Army. <clears throat> um, in those days, the Army had kind of a bad reputation in the aftermath in the waning days of Vietnam. So I entered West Point in 1975, just right about the time the Vietnam War was ending. But I got there, and after the initial attitude adjustment that I had to have going from civilian to soldier, I fell in love with West Point. I mean, the place was exciting. It was dynamic. The instructors were fantastic. They were all uh, combat veterans from Vietnam. Just about every single instructor was a combat arms officer, airborne, ranger, special forces, all that good stuff. And they were super motivated. And so as you would be learning math or English or foreign language, you'd also be in the leadership laboratory learning about how to lead soldiers all about combat, all about how to be a how to be a, an army officer. So it was great, and I really liked the people at West Point. Uh, there were a lot. Everybody was athletic. They were smart. They were had big personalities. They wanted to be leaders. It was an exciting place, and um, I loved the sports and the physical fitness and that uh, physical training program. Everything about it was good. So graduated from West Point and I was, you know, pretty high in the class and I was able to branch Corps of Engineers, which was the most selective branch in those days. So the hardest branch to get into was engineers. I got it. Uh, went to airborne ranger school, all that good stuff. Then went to my first unit in Germany, 
where I was a platoon leader of a 40-man heavy equipment construction combat engineer platoon. Our mission was to put in obstacles, German border, all the way back to the Rhine River. And so I had 40, 40 soldiers, all guys in those days, rough crowd. I mean, these were some pretty rough, tough guys. Uh, all the MCOs were Vietnam veterans. Everybody had, you know, all tons of tattoos. They drank black coffee morning, noon, and night. They swore like crazy. I never heard anybody use, could, could speak complete paragraphs just using the F word. It was pretty remarkable. But they were, they worked hard at their job and they took it seriously. And what I found was that if I took care of these guys, and they were all guys, no women in the platoon, they would do anything for me, for the unit, for the team. And so a lot of my time was doing kind of social work, helping them with pay problems, health problems, family problems, you know, stuff that I didn't think was part of soldiering, but that's what I spent my time on. And I helped them because me being, you know, the officer with the college degree, you know, I could navigate, and I had the rank, I could navigate those circles where they would get the door shut in their face. And so I had a great relationship with the platoon. Uh, really, really enjoyed it, loved it, uh, met my wife, got married, had a child. And then the Army is really good at, uh, they reward people who they think have a good future. So they said, hey, Martin, how would you like to go to graduate school? And I'm like, well, I think a bachelor's from West Point, is, uh, that exceeded all expectations. They said, no, 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 we'll send you to get a master's degree, all expenses paid, you'll do it, you know, as your, as your duty. So when I went to grad school, went to MIT, got some degrees there. That was a great experience because I went to one of the best universities in the world. What I've discovered dealing with all the different psychiatrists that I've dealt with and therapists, I think I've worked with eight psychiatrists. The most, the best explanation I can gather is that from my teenage years on, uh, I had what they call hyperthymia. And hyperthymia, you have, you have a mania, which is the highest level of being up hypomania, which is below the level of true mania. And then there's a, a one below that called hyperthymia. It's not talked about much, but it is in fact a psychiatric diagnosis. And the doctors call it mini mania, where your spirit is above normal. So from about teenage years, all the way through my life, I've always had excessive optimism, positivity, happiness, energy, enthusiasm, drive. But it was a very healthy condition. But it's just what I had. It's how I was. I mean, going back to junior high school and high school on all the sports teams, you know, I hustled the most. I was the most positive. You know, I was just the most gung-ho person all the way through my junior officer years. But somewhere probably in my 40s, that began to change as I started getting more and more stress in the Army. I was in my early 40s. I took it on myself to make sure every soldier was absolutely ready so we could deploy, fight, win, come home alive and healthy. You know, I had to make sure every family, every family member was prepared for the war. 
And I started putting more and more stress on myself as a person. Remember, stress is integral to bipolar. I never had really drank very much before. I started drinking. I would come home at night and I would drink. First, it was two drinks. Then it was four drinks. Then it was six drinks. Then it was beer. And then it was wine. And then it was whiskey. And it, it just, it increased over time. And the, and the alcohol was a form of self-medication. And then I started really getting into religion. And I had a lot of really religious uh, neighbors. And so I started going to not just one service on Sunday, but then I go to two, then I go to three, then I go to midweek, then I go to this, then I go to that. And, and that's religiosity. And so I started going up into mania and then down into depression. But it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like I was nuts or I was crazy or, you know, I was doing all these wild things. In retrospect, my wife thinks that the bipolar kicked in when I was a battalion commander. I don't know whether that's true or not. The psychiatrist, they don't think the symptoms were severe enough to have actually counted and be diagnosed as bipolar. But I, at the time, I had no idea there was anything wrong with me. I just thought, hey, this is a hard job. I have a hard boss. I went on to the war college and I started getting more manic, more depressed. One of my sons came down with really bad bipolar disorder, which was a family crisis. We worked through that. And then I went to brigade command as a colonel, bordered or, or went into the, into the um, area of being reckless that I put myself and my team who were there to do force protection for me, I put them at unnecessary risk to go see everything, hear everything, get a, get a eyeballs on every situation on the battlefield. But I, I became, I felt like I was Superman. And I actually had multiple experiences where I felt my body levitate up out of myself and I could look down on me below in a Humvee and I could see the battlefield, the array of Iraqi forces, the array of American forces. Because it had happened to me before when I was at Ranger School, you know, decades earlier, where I had levitated up out of my body based, and that was caused by lack of sleep, lack of food, and you have hallucinations, and that's not all that unusual. And then for the rest of the, whatever it was, nine or 10 months in Iraq, I cycled regularly from mania, where I was really up, to depression, where I was really down. And I never thought there was anything wrong. I never saw a doctor, but I was in pretty bad condition. I think it was difficult for many of my people to deal with because which Greg would they get? Would they get the happy, optimistic, super energy Greg? Or they get the Greg who was kind of dragging along, didn't have much energy, had a hard time concentrating in briefings. Good news is you couldn't drink down there. And I, I kept to that. I didn't break any of the rules on drinking. That's a long answer to your question. I, I didn't sweep it under the rug. I just didn't know I had it. And it went undiagnosed for another decade, 10 more years as a general. I had bipolar and it was serious. And I didn't know I had it. And, I, and, and during that entire 10-year period. Was there ever a point with the drinking when it would get it get so excessive that that would bring you down to the de depressive state well you hit a key point the it's it's kind of a weird paradox with the bipolar and the drinking because um 
drink alcohol is actually a depressant, which you know, which you know. But it it when you when you when you're manic, you want to drink because it does have that, it gives you that buzz, that high, but then it does bring you down into a depressive state. And I think it probably did have something to do with bringing me into the into depression because I wasn't all the time. I was, as a bipolar person, most of my boat time where the bipolar was active, most of it for me was in a manic state. In, in mania or you know super duper mania and the majority the minority of it was depressed although i did go through almost two straight years of depression hell with with um, um delusions um and when i was depressed i also had a desire to drink but it the thing with the depressive drinking was i was so depressed i felt so terrible i felt so bad one of the only things that i could do that helped make me feel slightly better, it was just a little bit of medicine, was to drink. And I had a friend when I was in my severe depression, I had a friend who made homebrew beer and he used to invite me to come over and we would drink homebrew beer and it was like, made me feel better. So I would, I would drink it, the beer was great, it was high alcohol content and I would get a buzz on and it would make me feel slightly better. But when it wore off, I felt worse. If I remember correctly, you had some some thoughts of suicide. With those thoughts of suicide, was there a, ever a point in which you felt a need to act upon those thoughts and, a, and attempt suicide? Okay, so here's what happened to me. As I fell from mania into depression, my life turned into a hell. It was like a hellish living nightmare. Near the end of it, I was still on active duty. Then I retired and moved up to a house we had in New Hampshire. And with the depression, the delusions, and all the feelings of these negative feelings I had, I started thinking about death more and more. I didn't think about, I want to die, I want to kill myself, let's develop a plan. That never really came into my mind. But what did come into my mind is, We'd go for a drive, like my wife would be driving on the highway, and I would quietly undo my seatbelt. And I would, I would say, please smash into that bridge abutment and I'll get killed. That's passive suicidal ideation. So I had these three different types of visions of death and dying, and they were morbid, they were graphic. I mean, there was and so when I went to the VA, when I finally went to the VA, thanks to a battle buddy, an army friend, and my wife, uh, I sat down with the head psychiatrist and he said, you know, he asked all the normal questions. Are you suicidal? No. Do you have thoughts of killing yourself? No. Do you have a plan to kill yourself? No. Do you have plans to kill others? No. Okay, I'd answer those questions all the time before. Then he said, he said, do you have morbid death, morbid visions of death and dying? And I said, what? So he, he repeated the question. I said, as a matter of fact, I do. I think about it all the time. I think about getting killed, beaten, trucks, you know, jail. He said, explain them. So I told them what I, I just, I told him what I just told you. And he said, whoa, these are what we call um, passive suicidal ideations. They are extremely serious. There's what, what that normally happens is they, they transform from passive to active 
without any warning. It just happens. Like you don't know when they're going to happen, but they happen. And so instead of you, you know, running in the woods and holding on to trees so you don't get thrown under the truck, you dive under the truck and it's then an active suicide. Um, he said, that's, this is really, really serious. We need to keep you in the psych ward for at least a couple of weeks um, and we'll work with you. So they did. I stayed in the psych ward for two weeks. That was, that was a, even though I didn't get better right away, it was a turning point on my road to recovery. Um, but, but so that's a long answer to yes, I did have suicidal ideations. Um, I just called them suicidal ideations. Mine were passive. I was lucky. Um, I never had a quote plan to kill myself, but those things I told you were kind of like subliminal passive plans that the next step would be to go do it. And I didn't want to die. I mean, my life was horrible. I was living in mental hell, but I didn't want to die. I, I wanted to get better. I wanted to be normal again, but I just didn't know how to do it. I am so glad that you got that help that you needed because I can't imagine living in this continued, even though it's passive, continually living in this I, I would imagine it feels torturous at some point where you're just continually thinking about death. I do want to backtrack to the leaving the military. When you got that phone call or that email that said, go see General Dempsey ASAP. You went in to talk to him and he gave you the ultimatum at 1700, I'm going to have this letter of resignation or you're fired. Was there a point in which you said either the old man, he's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or you know what? It's about time because I wouldn't go get help on my own. I legitimately think I'm good, but I'm glad somebody's making me go do it. Yeah, that was that was quite the day. The you know the conversation was great. And I had known General Dempsey, loved him, respect him, think the world of him. He was a mentor, a boss, a friend, and he handled things the way he always does: short, sweet, decisive, with a sense of humor and a smile. So when I you know I I, I got when I got the call to report to the chairman, and he said, I, and I encourage you to bring your wife, who he knew Maggie for a long time. I said, well. There's a chance he's going to advance, he's going to extend me in this job because he thinks I'm doing a good job, which was all indications that he had, or there's a chance he's going to let me go, um, which if that happens, fine. But I came in, he walked right across the room. I saw the lawyer who I knew. I said, oh, crap, I guess it's not going to be good if the lawyer's there. That's never a good sign. And so the lawyer's there, and Dempsey, he walked across the room, gave me a big hug because he's, he's an Irish guy, and he was smiling, and he said, Greg! I love you like a brother, but your time at NDU is done. You have till 1,700 hours today to submit your letter of resignation, or I will fire you. Is that clear? I smiled, and I just said, yes, sir, I understand it's clear. And he said, and besides, a lot of people think you've gone crazy over there. So I'm command referring you to go over to Walter Reed and get a mental health evaluation. Is that clear? I said, yeah, yes, I, it is, sir. It's very clear. And, and then, he, then he went on, and he said, you know, You've done an unbelievable job. I give you an A plus. 
nobody could have done what you did in two years. Um, you moved the ball from the end zone to the red zone. You're, you're, you're done there. You can't move the ball anymore because there's too much controversy at this point. So I'm just going to bring a new guy, and he's going to take the ball, run it into the end zone. He'll do exactly what you were doing. He'll take my plan, your plan, carry it through to execution. I'll make sure nothing changes. There'll be no changes of personnel, policy, procedures, strategy. We'll keep everything you put uh, in place. You've done a great job, but it's time to go. I've seen other generals in your situation, and they get, they're like Gulliver, where they get tied down and they die of a thousand little stab wounds from the natives. He said, that's going to happen to you. You're going to get increasing IG investigations. You're going to get media complaints. You're going to get congressional uh, investigations. All kinds of people are going to come after you. He said, I'm doing you a favor. You know, you're, you're retirement eligible. We, you know, we'll get you the medical help, we'll retire you, you go on to your new life, and I'm saving you a whole lot of pain. What was going through my mind was he doesn't really understand NDU. He doesn't understand that I am close bringing this thing to victory, which was part of my delusions. Dempsey was actually right. He had done a very careful three-month assessment of me, the university, the curriculum, the faculty. He had his ducks in a row. He did not make that move lightly because he liked me and respected me. And I was the guy he brought in. I mean, I was one of kind of like his guy and um, in previous jobs. So he didn't do it lightly at all. He did three separate assessments. And then there was a 15-6 investigation at the end, the result of an active shooter investigation. And so he, he made a careful, reasoned decision that was in the best interest of me and in the best interest of the university. So I, I respect that. But at the time, I thought he was making a big mistake. I thought he was, you know, pulling the trigger too soon. And, uh, and I told him that. I said, I think you're making a mistake. I think you're pulling the trigger too soon. You know, you should stick with me. I'll run this ball into the end zone. You'll see. You know, I am Craig Martin, you know, you know, hero of the Iraq War, veteran of all these commands as a general officer. God is going to take care of me. God is going to give me a new mission, a new grandiose, greater than ever mission that I'm going to take. And I'm going to even do better, bigger things than I did before. And that's what's going to happen. So I was totally, I was not only at peace, I was happy. I was content. I mean, I was optimistic. I was I mean, I was like, you know, floating on my toes as I left his office. I was like happy. My wife who he invited in to tell what had happened just out of respect to her. He, he thought I would probably be bummed out and, you know, depressed and disappointed. So he wanted to make sure Maggie got it from him, an old friend. And he told Maggie and, and Maggie still to this day says, yeah, I couldn't believe how happy you were and how well you took it. And you weren't bummed out and you weren't disappointed. I'm like, yeah, that's the power of mania. <laughs> mania, everything looks good. And so, you know, I kind of walked, I, I walked on air out of the room, just as happy as could be. And the army treated me very well. They took me back and gave me a job. It was kind of a soft landing job with the Corps of Engineers, but the senior leaders in the army were good. I mean, they didn't kick me to the curb. 
they didn't leave a fallen comrade. They knew something was really screwed up with me, but they liked me. They respected me and Maggie. They let me stay in quarters. They gave me a soft landing job that, you know, enabled me to take care of a lot of the medical problems and get ready to retire. And then I did. We'll be right back. So when you got the diagnosis, was there a, a sense of relief or not me? Uh, because again, I'm Greg Martin. It's not me, it's them. How hard what, or easy was it to come to terms with, this is my diagnosis and I need to move forward in getting treatment with it? Um, great question. It was kind of confused. And here's why it was confused. I was in the peak of mania and I got three, one, two, three diagnoses from the best psychiatrist at Walter Reed. Three of them in a row within a couple of weeks. And in each of those diagnoses, they said, you're fine, you're healthy, back to duty, return to duty, there's nothing wrong with you. And those reports went up the chain of command. So I'm thinking, well, people say I'm crazy. People say I've lost my mind. But here's the three psychiatrists tell me I'm okay. So it was very, it was very confusing. So I was kind of willing to go along with, there's something wrong with me, until the doctor said, you're fine. And at one of the, the, the third, um, actually, one of the chief of psychiatry actually made this comment. He said, you know, I've talked to you for an hour. You're the most mentally and emotionally balanced flag officer, general or admiral, that I've ever encountered. So I'm thinking, well, geez, here's the head of psychiatry. Tell me I'm like, you know, good to go. And at that meeting, my Maggie was there, which was good. I wish she had done all of them. She mentioned to them that she thought I seemed manic, that I had manic symptoms. And they didn't go along with it, but they made a note of it. And they sort of took it under consideration um, because I didn't seem manic to them at the time. Because you can be in mania, but have a reasonable conversation for an hour and then go back into crazy. Um, so that was in July of 2014. Then I slowly started to spiral over August, September. I started spiraling downward into depression. And then by October, November, I crashed hard. I mean, hard, hard into depression. So I could hardly function. And I went to the emergency room and they got me to see these psychiatrists up at Walter Reed again. And then it was plain as day. I was severely depressed. I could hardly get out of bed. I could hardly put my clothes on. I could hardly move. I could hardly talk. And they said, ooh, you are depressed. I said, yeah, I feel terrible. And, and then they put two and two together, the previously reported mania, mostly from my wife, and then the depression. They said, aha, mania, depression, that equals bipolar. And they diagnosed me in November of... Um, 2014, they diagnosed me with bipolar type one, which was accurate. That was the correct diagnosis uh, with delusions and paranoia and uh, psychosis, which complicated it a little bit. Um, but I was lucky that my PTSD was mild. So that wasn't a big intervening variable. Um, I wasn't alcohol dependent. I wasn't drug dependent. So it was a fairly straightforward, it was a strong, straightforward diagnosis. And when he told me, you have bipolar type one, I said, okay, well, that explains a lot of things. 
Um, but I was convinced because the depression was so terrible and so strong that I said, this, this, like where I could fool myself that the mania was normal. I couldn't fool myself with the depression. The depression was so horrible. I mean, it was mental hellness. It was mental hell. And I said, okay, I have bipolar type one with delusions, paranoia. And um, so I told my boss, who was a three-star at the time, I said, hey, I've just been diagnosed with bipolar disorder type one. They want to put me on convales convalescent leave for a while. Um, I told him, I was a little reticent to tell people at first because, you know, bipolar is pretty spooky. It's mental illness. It's, it's one of the spookier ones. I think schizophrenia is probably spookier, but bipolar scares people. And so I kind of kept it to myself, but of course, word kind of leaks out, stuff like that. But I started getting treated for it. I was seeing the doctor at least once a week till I retired. So that was November 14 to May of 15. Then I retired, went to New Hampshire, got treated in a civilian place in New Hampshire for about six or eight months, and then went to the VA. And I've been with the VA ever since. And then I have been telling people, hey, by the way, you know, I have bipolar disorder, type one. And uh Hey, if you're interested, I'll tell you about it. So I've been like, you know, the spokesman for bipolar, like for the last five years and, uh, you know, writing an article, I'm writing a book. I've given, you know, dozens of speeches, done a whole bunch of podcasts because to me, I got it. It went inside my brain. I didn't want it, but it came to me. So I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed about it. I don't feel bad about it. It is what it is. So now I'm going to make lemons, lem lemonade out of lemons. And I'm going to tell people, it's like, it's not your fault you get a mental illness. It is your fault if you don't try to get better and do the stuff you're supposed to do. But it's not your fault. You should deal with it. I'm proud to be a bipolar survivor. I'm proud of it. I'm thankful. Like how many people have had this experience and gone through it? You know, so I've been you know, in a war. I'm proud of that had bipolar. I'm proud of that. I've recovered from bipolar. It's good stuff. It's hard, but it's good. <laughs> yeah. And, and I agree. There is such a negative stigma when it comes to mental health stuff. And like you mentioned with schizophrenia, bipolar, Ooh, those are the, those are the bad ones. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, it is what it is. You don't go out and contract bipolar. You don't contract schizophrenia or depression. So, you know, it, it really it is what it is. And it's now what you do with it that matters. That's what's important, what you do with the diagnosis. Do I try to get better or do I just say, uh, forget about it? It, it, you know, whatever. Um, I, I do want to, uh, before we close out, I do want to ask about your sons. You think you have two sons that are in the military and one of them maybe has a diagnosis. Um, what, what's, what's that like? Okay. One son is on active duty and he's fine. No issues at all. Um, then I have two other sons both of them came down with and got diagnosed in high school with uh, bipolar disorder 
And then one of them has is sort of evolved into ADHD. So the older one, when after he graduated from college, he really wanted to go in the army. He really wanted to serve as a, as a linguist. And so that was back in 2007 when the army was granting a lot of waivers. So he got, he got evaluated, got a waiver for his bipolar from high school. He hadn't been on medication for a while. So he went in, you know, basic training, uh, went to DLI to be a linguist. He volunteered for special forces, did, did a few deployments did very, very well, made staff sergeant, um, you know, got decorated in combat, did, did a great job. Um, unfortunately, his two best friends on their very last uh, mission were both killed in the last mission right next to him as he fought to try to save them. And so that threw him into a tailspin of PTSD, depression, survivor's guilt, moral injury. I mean, the whole everything kind of, and it, it really kind of took him down and he got medically retired as an E6, uh, but he served for eight years and he did well. And so he's been dealing with that plus his ADHD, but his life is good. He's married, he's got a fabulous wife, um, just had a new baby. So he's, he's very, very talented. I mean, he speaks Chinese. He's written a book. Um, physically looks great, strong, physically fit. I mean, could probably be like a GQ model. Um, but inside his brain, he's wrestling with a lot of stuff. So that's him. The third one is, was never in the military. He got diagnosed with cyclothymia, which is like a lower level of bipolar. So the mania is not that high, the depression is not that low, but it kind of sticks with you. You can't, you can't get rid of it. It's like gum on your shoe and you're in depression, a low level depression a lot of the time. And so it's called cyclothymia or bipolar type three is the informal name. And he got it in high school and it really held him back. Uh, he did graduate, but then he went on, he wanted to go to college, you know, seven year college plan, but he made it through. So that's pretty good. Uh, lots of different odd jobs, kind of making it, making it along. And right now he's doing fairly well. He's in graduate school. He's in his thirties. He's going to grad school. He likes it. He's doing well To I'm very happy that the two of them, the two that have been diagnosed since I've started speaking and writing and being this megaphone for bipolar, both of them have gone to the doctor they have seen psychiatrists, they're working with psychiatrists, they have therapists, they have been prescribed medication, they're taking their medication, they're getting better. You can't ask for anything more than that. And that's it, they're both in their 30s. And it's, I think it's much harder to deal with this stuff when you're young and you're like, I should be healthy, I should be keeping up with my friends, but I'm held back by this disability. It's easier for me in my 60s, you know, I retired from the army, uh, I don't care about working again. My new mission is telling my bipolar story to stop the stigma and save lives. And so comparatively, this stuff is easier for me. You know, I'm married, you know, my two of my sons are single. So they still want to meet girls and get married and have a kid. Um, they want to have a career. They want to have a job. So it's much harder for them. I think they're doing well because they've taken it seriously and they're getting help. 
What would you tell them as it relates to bipolar and any other mental health issue? What, what message would you tell them if, if someone is? It comes to us. It's in our brain DNA. It gets activated or triggered by something, be it stress or war or assault or, you know, something triggers it and it causes the brain circuitry to alter itself. And then the biochemical production and distribution is out of whack and it results in, you know, bipolar or PTSD or any one of a number of other things. So the first thing you have to realize is it's not your fault. You didn't cause it. You're not to blame. It happened. Just like it's not your fault that you break your leg or you get cancer or you get diabetes. It just happened. So then the issue is if you think something might be a little bit off or helter skelter in your mind or your behavior, I would take a look at what the symptoms are. I mean, you can go online and very quickly find out here are the symptoms of bipolar or PTSD or whatever, and say, gee, do I have some of that? And take a look at yourself and then go to your significant others, your spouse, your kids, your friends and say, hey, you know, I've been feeling a little, a little off lately. Uh, here's the symptoms of, you know, these various mental illnesses or mental health challenges. You know, do you see any of this in me? You know, I kind of see it on this one. What, what do you think? Or I don't see it on this one. What do you think? And then kind of go through that. And then I would go see a doctor. I would go see a doctor and say, hey, I, I, I think there might be something wrong with me. I think I might have some aspect of mental illness. And then the doctor will get you to see a psychiatrist. And then when you see the psychiatrist, it's not the time to be bashful or modest like most military people are. You know, most people, oh, no, it's okay. Oh, I broke my leg, but it's still all right. I can still run five miles on my broken leg. No, no, you have a broken leg. Get your broken leg fixed. And, uh, but military people are terribly bad about doing that. And so you see a psychiatrist and you tell it like it is. And I would say if you have friend, family, spouse who can corroborate your mental illness, bring them with you. Try to get the, say, hey, can I, hey, doc, can I bring them in? Now, most military people don't want their husband or wife to come with them. They want to be alone and, you know, be tough and, you know, do it all themselves. But the, in the office with the spouse, it gives the doctor a much fuller, complete picture of your condition. And it makes it easier for them to make a faster, more accurate diagnosis. I think that's a good thing. And then you want to see a therapist because therapists are psychologists who kind of hit a different angle than the doctor does. The medical doctor, the psychiatrist, they're hitting medications. And the medication process typically takes a long time. It took me two years, which is actually fairly short for bipolar. A lot of times it takes four, six, 10 years before somebody finally gets the right medication. So it took me two before they hit the bullseye and then I was okay. Um, so I think you should, if you think you have a problem, go talk to people and get help. 
Now, if you're like I was and thought I didn't have a problem for a long time, I went 11 years between coming down with bipolar in the Iraq war and General Dempsey kicking me out to the psychiatrist. I mean, that was 11 years, 11 and a half years. Um, and I didn't think I had it. I was convinced I didn't have it. I think over those 11 years, more and more and more people thought I had a mental problem. And by the end, they were convinced I had a problem. But what happens is your subordinates don't want to talk to you about it because it's a very uncomfortable situation. They don't want to talk to you because they think they might get in trouble. They don't want to talk to you because they maybe like and respect and love you as a commander and they don't want to lose you. Um, they don't have a safe place to turn. Like maybe they can't go to you, the commander, but they, they don't even feel comfortable going up to another peer of yours or someone that is high enough who should be able to talk. Um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of different reasons why people won't come and get the word to the commander. And there's not a safe space for a lower ranking soldier or person to get that message through. Like there's not a soft, easy way to talk to a mental health professional in the unit and get that mental health professional to go talk to them or a chaplain uh, to do the same thing. So those are things that need to be, um, I think, corrected. Um, it, but, but then um, what happened at NDU is some people who thought I had a problem they went to the media, like they ghost wrote articles for Tom Rex. They wrote little articles saying I was crazy and a madman and need, needed to go. So that was their way to reach out. However, they also were against General Dempsey. They were against the transformation. They were against what I was trying to do. So it was kind of a double win for them. They could try to get me out because I was the change agent and they thought I was crazy and they could go against the changes and keep things the way they were. So that was kind of a double whammy. Um, but a lot of times the media is not a credible source. Like most senior army generals didn't take that particular reporter seriously. They saw him as a gadfly, as a troublemaker, as a person who just likes to stir up, stir up mud. Um, but what did become effective which, uh, which is unfortunate they, ha they had to do it, was more and more people the last couple months started going around me and sending in anonymous complaints up the chain of command to General Dempsey. And he got those complaints. He got those by the dozens, maybe the hundreds, I don't know how many. And then he said, whoa, I think I have a problem. I'm going to do a series of comprehensive assessments and make my own mind up based on the combination of the anonymous complaints and my own assessments done by people, senior leaders I know and trust. And he put that all together and he said, yeah, I think we have a real problem here. Time for Martin to go. So did that answer it, do you think? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Um, and, and I do think that's important. And you said something that I just thought, oh my gosh, how true is that? That we as service members, like, I got this. I, I'm good. I don't need to go and talk to some doctor to see if I need help. Um, and, and one of the things that I even found myself 
saying is, I'm an NCO. I make stuff happen. And if something is broke, I fix it. Um, nothing happens to me. I prevent things from happening because that's what NCOs do. And sure, that's great. Maybe as it, that's a great mindset as it relates to performing a particular job and, and leading and mentoring people. But when it comes to self-care, I, I, I don't got it going on. Um, I have to do self-care. I have to take care of myself. I need to get professional advice, professional help, because I'm not the sum of all things. And that's a, a, a mindset that I think many times we falsely And the the comparison that I like to tell people, especially you know veterans, people in the veteran community, is is when we deploy and um, we need we need a, a medic or we need air support, we need ammunition, we need food, whatever it is that we we need, we have no problem calling in for support. No problem at all saying, hey, I need, you know, I need air support ASAP. I need a medic here. I need a medevac, somebody out of here. We don't, we do not even hesitate to do that. But then when we're a veteran, we don't call for backup when we need it mm-hmm. because it's more personal. Um, it's not, we're not in that combat environment. We're in our personal environments and I, I think that's where we mess up. That there's nothing wrong with calling in support when I have that broken leg or I'm I've, I'm depressed and I've been depressed for a while or whatever the case may be. We can call for backup and it's okay to call for backup. It's okay to call for help and ask for that help. We'd have to, you know, I, I like to say we have to get over ourselves mm-hmm. and ask for help because what harm is it going to do to ask for help? Thank you. Have a nice day.